This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to another Money and Markets podcast. I'm Danny Hewson and I'm joined today by AJ Bell's Head of Retirement Policy, Tom Selby. Hi, Tom. Hi, Danny. So today we'll be mulling over the latest UK inflation and jobs data, which shows, among other things, more over 50s are heading back into the workplace. But there's a big pension question in there to consider. We've got the FTSE 100 continuing to flirt with the record books, nudging close to but not quite hitting a new high as UK retailers in particular deliver on the upside. But it's not all been good news with profits at big US bank Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley taking a big hit with deals down and millions being set aside as recession beckons. Shares editor Dan Coatsworth has been chatting to Mark Slater about the rebound in UK stocks and how 2022 was one of his hardest ever years as a growth investor. And with the reopening of China partly behind the New Year rally, I've been chatting to Ewan Markson Brown, manager of the Crux China Fund, about where he sees the opportunities for investors. And of course, whenever you get me hosting the pod, you know there will be pensions galore. This time I'll be looking at the Treasury's Bill for Pension Tax Relief, which has passed £50 billion for the first time as a result of rising pension savings rates, which of course is good news. It's always a treat, Tom, when we get you on. (laughs) Always a treat. But there has been something of a treat for everybody with the latest um, UK inflation numbers, which have come down just a teeny tiny bit. Now, it seems bonkers that we're getting excited and jumping up and down by a 0.2% fall in headline (laughs) inflation. But... We are. I mean, 10.5%, Tom, is still such a long way from 2%. Mm. Mm. Absolutely bonkers. Um, And we are excited about this because this is the first time since the pandemic that inflation has fallen in the UK for two months in a row. We did have over the summer one month where we saw a dip, then it went back up again and in fact hit a record 40-year high. Now, the good news Prices at the pump obviously have been falling, so petrol and diesel are now back to levels last seen in February 2022. But food shop, do you go and do the food shop with your household? Uh, we mix it up, so I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it sometimes, and, and and my wife will do it sometimes as well. So I, I have I have certainly experienced fl- inflation on the front line. I think my my um, my, my most obvious experience of it was getting a. a one of those pots of the pots of I think they're called Azera coffees. Other coffees are available, and um, the price of it had went up substantially, and the size of it went down at the same time. So it both experienced inflation in the price and what they call shrinkflation. So the amount I got went down as well. And I'm sure sure we're seeing that across across lots of different goods in the shops as well. I definitely noticed that in mm. a tin of my favourite Christmas chocolate treats. Um, and uh, probably won't be surprised that as we run up to Christmas, of course, December, we're all spending more on things like chocolates. And that is one of the food items mm. where we've seen inflation shooting up the most. 45-year high food inflation is still out. And, of course, you've still got issues 
with energy as well. And while we are talking about um, the fact that it does look like we are on track to see inflation continue to fall, and the Bank of England and the government obviously have this target of it halving next year, there are still a couple of niggles to consider. Of course, energy. Come April, we see the price cap change. So that's going to add an extra £500 to your bill. And something that not a lot of people are talking about, of course, is that at the moment, we're getting 400 quid off our bills, 66, £67 a month popping up there. And that is going to disappear as well. So although things are going the right way, clearly for people who are struggling they're not going to see much of a change and of course although we are talking about inflation coming down we're for the most part not talking about prices coming down now i also just want to mention us inflation figures as well because um we hinted that they were on their way in the last pod and they did come in bang on the money actually as expected 6.5 percent which clearly is a a far nicer number than the 10.5% we're dealing with in the UK. But it did start the big merry-go-round again. What will the Fed do? And of Mm -hmm. course, today, a lot of questions about what will the Bank of England do? The smart money seems to be on a 0.5%, 50 basis point hike in February. Uh, The number of um, market analysts estimating that that looking at Bank of England rate probability shot up from 75% to over 80% after we got the inflation figures. So uh, clearly, lots of things to watch there. Yeah, there's going to be plenty more speculation on interest rates. And I think I think that, that point you made on, on the fact that inflation is coming down, but that prices aren't necessarily is, is an important one to emphasize. So so while we're we're seeing that rate of inflation, so the rate of price increases is coming down, and that's a good thing. What you're not going to see is the price of the stuff that you're buying in the shops coming down as well. It's going to keep going up from that higher price that we're seeing at the moment because that inflation is is baked in. And so we've we've also had jobs numbers in the UK, haven't we, Danny? Yeah, and um, you can't really separate jobs numbers from inflation at the moment mm. because although all the headlines were screaming about the fact that pay wasn't keeping up with inflation, we still had huge pay increases. So average pay in the three months to November up 6.4%. Private sector clearly paying more than the uh, public sector at the moment, seeing a huge number of strikes going on as uh, uh, many workers are finding that their wages just can't keeping up with the cost of living. And we did see a huge number, almost half a million days lost to strike action in November. But just looking at the headline there, unemployment did nudge up just a teeny tiny bit, 0.2% to 3.7%. Vacancy numbers had slip back a bit again, but we've still got a huge number of vacancies. So there's one job for every one person unemployed at the moment. And that is just keeping pressure on employers to keep paying elevated wages. And that is now sort of passing its way through into our inflation numbers. So when we're talking about inflation, um, headline CPI at 10.5%, core inflation that has held steady at 6.3%. And actually, in terms of the service sector, inflation has nudged up a bit to 6.8%, suggesting that, you know, all of those pay increases 
are sort of filtering their way through into price increases for services. But, you know, with the cost of living being as it is, many people who maybe have taken a step back from the jobs market are now re-entering the jobs market. And I know one of the, the sort of things which you've picked out of these jobs figures is the number of over 50s heading back to the workplace. Yes, that's that's right, Danny. So, so as you as you say, there's a a big focus at, at government level on getting more people into the workforce, and in particular, there's a a focus and a DWP led review on getting over more over fifties and more older people back into the labour market as well. So, a bit of background on that. So, the pandemic and lockdown was, of course, a seismic shock shop to the economy and and we're still to an extent feeling the reverberations of that today both through the high inflation figures although obviously many factors affecting that and also in the labour market as well so if you look specifically at those people over the age of 50 so the number of over 50s in employment plummeted by from around 10,650,000 pre-pandemic so at the start of 2020 to to a low of 10,450,000 at the start of 2021 so that's in the middle of lockdown there so we're talking about a 200,000 person drop off in the number of people in the labour market which is significant when you think that's just the number of people over the age of 50 now there, there may have been plenty of reasons for that. It's hard to pin down exactly which one was the main factor, but you'll have had people being laid off. You might have had people taking temporary work breaks, perhaps as a result of the, the pandemic and having a bit of a reevaluation of their, their priorities and their balance between work and life. And of course, you'll have had plenty of people who would, will have decided that actually enough is enough in terms of work and they want to take early retirement. Now, since that low in early 2021, we've seen the number of over 50s in the workforce bounce back significantly. So we're now back to the the level of employment within that group that we saw before the pandemic hit. So those 200,000 people who left the workforce have now returned. It might not be exactly the same 200,000 people, but the, the number of people in the workforce among that age group has returned to what we saw pre-pandemic. Now, that may be because people have just decided that not working isn't for them. It might be that people have managed to find jobs. It might also be that people in a high inflation environment have decided that actually their pension pots can't last for the 40 or more years that they might need to last for in order for them to be sustained throughout their retirement. But the government still wants to do more. So it wants more of these over 50s back into the workforce, as well as people from other age ranges. And it's considering all sorts of possible interventions, according to the the reports that we've seen in the press recently. So from things like midlife MOTs, so this idea that you give people a financial health check partway through their lives, and that will help them make decisions about their finances, including potentially returning to work, to perhaps the more radical and slightly problematic idea of, of favouring over 50s in the tax system. Now, I think an idea like that would be riddled with complexities and, <laughs> and challenges and potential unfairnesses as well. And I think we'd need another podcast possibly to go into that. But if 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 I may, as as the kind of resident pensions expert, one one idea that I think the government should be 
considering is revisiting the money purchase annual allowance. Now, that's something I've 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 talked about on the podcast before and in shares columns and things. So so in brief, that the those who flexibly access taxable income from their retirement pot from age 55 see their annual allowance, so the amount that they can save in a tax incentivizer environment within a pension, drop from forty thousand pounds to just four thousand pounds. And they also lose the ability to carry forward unused pensions allowances from the previous three tax years. So it's a really big penalty for people who use the pension rules as intended to take taxable income from their pot. And it acts as a direct disincentive for people to return to work. So if you've triggered the money purchase annual allowance, then the amount that you can save each year in a tax incentivized environment, it drops from £40,000 to £4,000. So if you want to save more than that amount, and that includes your own personal contributions and employer contributions, by the way, then you'd be hit with an annual allowance charge, which would take back the upfront tax incentive that you've received for saving in a pension. Now, we believe that that's unfair. It feels like a genuine blocker to people returning to the workforce. So it's something that stops those over 50s potentially from wanting to work for longer or work longer hours because they can't save as much in a pension as they could do before and receive those tax incentives. I think at a minimum, it would be good to see the the money purchase annual allowance increased back to £10,000. So that was the level that it was first introduced in uh, back in 2017, I think it was. It will give people just a bit more flexibility to save more for retirement if they've accessed their pension. And it would just be a message from the government to people that, that actually we want you back in the labour market and we're not going to punish you to the degree, the degree that we do at the moment for accessing your pension pot, which for many at the moment will be will be doing so at a time of, of severe financial distress. Yeah, because it's just topping up, isn't it? And when you're talking about inflation the way it is, you know, just having a, a part-time job just might not cut it, but mm. it will help. And if you can then top up your pension for you know, further down the line, particularly if you think, hang on a second, you know, I've stopped working when I was 60. And now I'm 70. And now I'm thinking I'm fit and healthy, I might live another 20 years. Mm. Um, I've had conversations with so many people like that. Yeah. And you've you've also got, got the big challenge that there are, there will be people who have accessed taxable income from their pension during this crisis, who wouldn't have been planning to do it, but might have had to either to, to fill an income gap for, for themselves, of course, because we're seeing the price of, of things going up by 10% or more, depending on how old you are and your own personal rate of inflation. They, they might have had to access their pension to help elderly relatives, perhaps to pay for care. People might have had to access their, their pension to help their kids out as well, because clearly this is a really challenging time for, for younger people as well. And so you'll, you'll have plenty of people who have had to take taxable income from their pension in order to deal with an immediate crisis who might not have benefited from generous defined benefit pensions, which have withered on the vine in the private sector, who might not have built up decent retirement pots for themselves either because they haven't been covered by auto-enrolment for very long, who would really benefit from having a higher annual allowance because they're trying to make up for lost time. And so there are reasons that the money purchase annual allowance 
exists. So the government is concerned about something called pension tax free cash recycling. Um, and so, so it, it's understandable that we have this lower allowance. The question is the, the level at which it's set. And, and it feels like something as we move towards another major fiscal statement, namely the budget in March, it feels like one that could be an easy win for the government to show that it's not just warm words on getting older people back into the workforce, but it's willing to, to create tax incentives to do that as well. Well, let's see. Not long to wait. <laughs> Exciting. Um, <laughs> I'm already stockpiling my snacks just in case they sort of either get more expensive or shrink even more in the run-up. Um, look, it's not just um, inflation and, and jobs data that investors have been mulling over uh, over the last week because earnings season has continued thick and fast. And we've had more decent trading updates from UK retailers in particular. Now, Dan and I were talking a, an awful lot about this last week. But just to recap some of the big news that we've had, um, we had a Tesco update and Marks and Spencer update. We were saying that uh, they were heading our way when we recorded the pod last week. Both of those did pretty well. I mean, not staggeringly brilliantly, but they did incredibly well when you consider where inflation is. They weren't getting you know, increased sales above inflation, but they were getting increased sales. Um, we also have had an update from Curry's today, which has seen its shares jump up more than 8%. So it had stronger than expected Christmas profit as well. Now, it's important to say that it had already um, said that its profits would be down, but it's now maintained its guidance for the year because people have been buying more energy efficient white goods. So although they've been putting off, you know, buying things like uh, laptops and mobile phones, they have been buying air fryers and, you know, things like electric blankets to try and deal with the cold snap. And it is very cold here today. Uh, we also had WH Smith Travel sales back up. I mean, their numbers are just stellar. In the 20 weeks, it saw sales up by a whopping 41%. Of course, now people are back in airports and at train stations, and they're saying that it is almost back to normal. But of course, all of this just suggests that the economy has been holding up a, a lot better than many people anticipated. And we also had GDP figures on Friday, which really do tell that story very neatly. So GDP actually managed to eke out teeny, teeny, tiny amount of growth. And it's now cast doubt on whether or not the UK will get the technical label recession on it when we get the next lot of figures in a month's time. But of course, in some ways, that is just another headache for the Bank of England because they had been banking on, excuse the term, <laughs> a, a fall in GDP, in the economy slowing, in jobs being lost because all of that, of course, brings down inflation. And if we have an economy that continues on in this robust way, then clearly they have to work harder in order to bring inflation down. But all of this just means that um, the FTSE has been flirting really over the past week with a record high. It's not quite got there, but just looking since the start of the year, up 5.4%. Got the S&P since the start of the year up 3.9%. Um, we've got the Hang Seng up a whopping 9.6%. Of course, all of that to do with China reopening. And we're going to be talking a bit more about that later on. 
So good news for the stock market, potentially good news for the UK economy, some challenges for, for the Bank of England, of course, there. But the news is less good across the Atlantic from US banks, isn't it? Yeah, this has been interesting because we've had a real mixed bag. And I'm going to pick out two because we've had those uh, just in the last day or so. So this is um, the big Wall Street investment banking titans, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Now, they both saw profits nearly half. I mean, not great, but you had one beating expectations and one falling far behind expectations. And there'll be no surprise which way investors jumped on hearing the numbers. So let's start with Morgan Stanley because it it did pretty well. It's definitely won the battle of the banks this time around. And that is because it's really been putting money into wealth management and we've seen revenues increase there. So investors very much liking that sort of safer money trajectory for Morgan Stanley. But on the other side of things, we've got Goldman Sachs and it has really been dealing with higher costs. I know that it went on a massive hiring spree. It was offering great big bonuses. And now, of course, we're talking about huge cost cutting. And it's also increased rainy day funds. Now, you know, putting cash aside in order to deal with potential bad debts is something that we've seen all the banks do. And I think something that investors have taken out this set of earnings from the banks is they they don't feel like recession is off the cards. They do feel like globally the economy is marching slower and slower into that boggy ground. But it's just been fascinating to see the differences between the two banks and and the way that they have positioned themselves. And the boss of Goldman Sachs has actually said, look, you know, we need to slow down our attempt to get more into retail. We've tried to do too much too quickly and we need to reevaluate. So um, investors will be keeping a really close eye on what happens with those banks in the coming months. Fascinating. Thanks for that, Danny. Now, Mark Slater is one of the best known fund managers in the UK, and he runs the £1 billion Slater Growth Fund. Over his career, Mark has seen many ups and downs for the stock market and knows a thing or two about navigating difficult conditions. So Dan Coatesworth recently caught up with Mark to get his take on the current rebound in UK stocks and his thoughts on what might happen this year. So, Mark, so far in 2023, quite a few UK stocks seems to have perked up. And I know many of these have been sort of perhaps the, the worst performing shares last year. And they're the ones that are leading the pack in terms of sort of the top rises now. Do you think there's been a sort of a, a definite shift in investor attitude? Or do you think this is just another bout of short term optimism that won't last? I mean, this is the the sort of million dollar question as to whether this is a bear market rally um, or the real thing. Um, And uh, you you only ever know until afterwards. Um, And I don't think it's a good use of time, frankly, to try and guess. Um, I I mean, the way we invest is we're not trying to finesse every market movement. Um, It's impossible. And you almost invariably will lose money if you try. Um, sentiment was extremely bad in September, October, and particularly for the UK. You know, I think the the world's view of the UK 
probably did see capitulation in the wake of the uh, mini budget. Um, but whether that is the same thing as a sort of proper capitulation in stocks, I, I, I'm not convinced. Um, it's possible, though. Um, certainly, we saw valuations at the lowest levels we've seen for a very long time. There was loads of single-digit single, single digit PEs, which is what we haven't seen since 2000, 2008 um, So you know, valuation has got very, very low and sentiment got very, very bad. So it's entirely possible it was a low, but I wouldn't rule out it being a bear market rally. But for me, it doesn't really change what we do. You know, we're still trying to find good businesses and hold them for much longer periods of time than um, market fluctuations would um, have an impact on. Hmm. Was 2022 perhaps the hardest year in your career to be a growth investor? I mean, it was certainly up there. Um, I think 2008 was worse um, because the world was literally ending or it felt like it could. Um, so I, I don't think it was as bad as that, but it was it was very hard um, for, for most investors. You know, we've seen a very big shift in sentiment in pretty well all asset classes, the, the movement interest rates. And that creates lots of lots of problems. Um, it also creates lots of opportunity. Um, so I think the key in these difficult times is you, you keep your head. You've got to remember, um, you know, it's a, it's interesting. It's when things are great, people find it hard to imagine them being bad, and when things are bad, people find it hard to imagine them being good. Um, and I think one has to try and remember that uh, life goes on, and um, that's what that's how we've approached it. So I know last year we saw a big derating in shares. Uh, what do you think it would take now for investors to start paying higher multiples of earnings? For growth stocks, or do you think actually we're, we're facing this sort of new normal where stocks that might have been trading on something like 40 times earnings, well, now they're only going to be rated at 20 times and investors aren't prepared to pay anything more for them? Well, it's possible. I mean, I, I think you never say never, um, you know, in the same way that, you know, strange things have happened in the last couple of years, three years that one perhaps wouldn't have anticipated. Strange things might happen again, but I don't think it's normal for investors to pay very, very high multiples. And that clearly was in large part um, a, a function of very cheap money. And money is being, the price of money is definitely normalizing. So I think very very elevated PEs are probably things we're not gonna see for a long time. For us, it's fairly material. You know, in our process, we don't pay more than 20 times you know, prospective earnings, uh, that's after tax. Um, and we've never changed that since 1994. Um, and our sweet spot has always really been somewhere between 10 and 15 times earnings. Um, so for us, it's not really, it's sort of, it's like going home. <laughs> um, this change in um, in the way uh, companies are being priced, it, you know, if things are more normal, um, that in many ways makes um, our lives a little bit easier. Do you, I mean, what about the, the companies in your portfolio? Do you think that they would be resilient if we get, a nasty recession this year. Yes, I think in the main, in the main, they will be. Um, you know, we've we've got quite a lot of companies that we own that are fairly unequivocally resilient. You know, our biggest holding is Serco. Um, their, their business is very, very, very resilient. Um, fantastic order books. A lot of the businesses is from government, um, and a fair number of other businesses that have a similar sort of profile, where they're you're looking at businesses where 
they, they sell kind of products that you have to buy, you know, whether it's regulatory sort of spend or compliance spend or health and safety spend. This is stuff that customers can't, aren't allowed to cut back on. Um, we own some businesses in sectors that are traditionally affected by recession, but even within those, um, the businesses we own, we're, we're confident about. You know, a good example would be Next15, which is a business we've owned for more than 15 years, I think. Um, they're, they're in the media space. Um, people think of it as a marketing company, but it's not. Um, it, the business is much more about digital transformation, which is a must-spend um, in the minds of most finance directors. Um, similarly, we own um, companies in the leisure sector. Leisure is often affected, but in recession, my view is that people don't stop spending money. They just spend it much more carefully. Um, similarly, they don't stop having fun. They just have fun in slightly different ways. Um, so our leisure investments are in the uh, in the bowling sector. And we own the two uh, quoted 10-pin bowling companies, uh, 10 Entertainment and Hollywood Bowl. We think they'll both be very, very resilient. Um, they still represent the cheapest form of family entertainment. Um, and quite often, people trade down. They stop doing more expensive things and they do less expensive things more often. And at the moment, the, these companies are seeing very elevated levels of footfall. They're not actually putting the prices up. They're, they're, they're benefiting from much higher levels of, of, of traffic. So I think they could even benefit. So we do expect um, a high level of resilience, yeah. You have a stake in Prudential, um, which would sort of imply you'd get a tailwind from China's reopening story, given that the company's very Asia-focused. Do you think people might be overestimating the pace at which China's economy will strengthen? Um, and generally, what is it that you're sort of um, confident about in terms of Prudential as an investment? I mean, I don't think people are overestimating the impact of Hong Kong reopening. Um it's the shares suffered for quite a long time with the the riots and all those problems in Hong Kong and the pandemic, where basically Hong Kong, Hong Kong was was shut down, um, both to external uh, people but also to people from the mainland. Um, the Hong Kong a few years ago was forty five percent of sales, an enormous part of the business. Um, in the last the last time they reported, it was eleven percent of sales. Um, the consensus, and it's quite difficult to work this out, but broadly speaking, I think the consensus for 2025 shows um, that the, the assumption is that Hong Kong sales will still be a third less than they were pre-pandemic, um, which I think is very, very conservative. So I don't think the market is assuming an enormous explosion of activity in Hong Kong. Um, now, the one complicating factor in this is that mainland Chinese sales have actually risen quite a lot in that period to, to, to account for the fact that there's been less travel to Hong Kong. Um, but I, I still think there's not, I don't think there's a great assumption of an enormous boom in Hong Kong in the numbers. I, I think, if anything, there's the scope for upside um, from that source. Um, more generally, you know, the, the, the business, the shares at least, have been fairly quiet up until very recently with Hong Kong's reopening. I think there's a very big catch up to be had. Um, the, the, the P multiple is very slightly above their 10 year average, maybe two points above their 10 year average right now. Um, and they're at a low point where there's a lot, a lot of recovery to be had. Um, they've also got rid of Jackson and they've got rid of M&G, 
So it's a very, very pure play now um, on some very, very fast growing markets. So I, I think um, it, it's modestly priced given the um, upside. Yeah. I mean, you've seen plenty of market ups and downs in your career. What would you say to anyone who's experienced a difficult market over the last year and perhaps they've lost a bit of confidence that they can actually make money with investing? Well, I think the most important thing is not to give up now. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's pretty well the worst time to give up after having an awful lot of pain. Um, after a lot of pain, your odds of good returns dramatically improve. Um, and, you know, bear markets are normal. Yeah, they're unpleasant, but they're normal. I, I think this is the seventh bear market of my professional career. Um, you know, they're, they're normal, they're unpleasant, but they are in a way the price you pay to set you up for the next sort of good run. Um, Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's business partner, I, he says that if you, as an investor, you should expect very significant reductions in your wealth, even up to 50% every few decades. It, that's that, and, and then obviously more frequently you have these 10, 20% type hits. Um, it's normal, it's unpleasant, but the one rule of investing, if, if one forgets everything else, is that you don't sell at the bottom. Um, so, you know, I think if one gets out early, if one's fortunate enough to do that, fair enough, but you do not sell at the bottom. Mark Slater from the Slater Growth Fund talking to Dan. Now, he mentioned China and the scrapping of the zero COVID policy and the reopening of the economy is one of the major factors for the optimism that is permeating markets at the moment. Now, despite weak growth that Chinese China's economy saw in 2022, just 3%, Although, of course, when you're talking about the UK, we'd probably love 3%, but it is not anywhere near what China is used to, nor what the Chinese government wanted. However, reopening very much now underway. We've got, obviously, um, travel, international travel taking place, and it is making a lot of people look again at China Chinese investments. There are opportunities there are also potential pitfalls. So I've been asking both of those questions and a whole load more to Ewan Markson Brown from Crux Asset Management, who manages the Crux China Fund. Ewan, thanks very much for coming and talking to us today. Um, China, let's be fair, as a place for investors to look to put their money over what seemed like, well, three years at least, it hasn't been the best place for a while. What's changed? Thank you for having me on. And yeah, you're right that being a Chinese specialist and investor in China has been pretty painful for the last few years, especially the last two and a bit years. Um, but I think everything's changing for the better and those dark clouds are lifting. Um, but maybe let's first go back to the last couple of years where what we've already seen, we've seen two big things impact the market. And that's, first of all, that we've had earnings decline last year and the year before, and probably most importantly, a derating of the market. So the overall PE multiple on the market has declined for two consecutive years and by a significant amount. And that's really hurt investors. And so it's basically the expectations have fallen and are really, really low. And what caused that? Well, I think three big trends. So first of all, it was that COVID zero policy, locking everyone down for what seemed like forever. Um, and you know, 
I think expectations even three to four months ago was this was going to go on for the whole of 2023 as well. And even then a slow uh, recovery from that. Secondly, regulation and tech regulation. We, we know about the property regulation and a general disinterest by the government or an actual attempt to reduce the growth rate of the economy and really hammer a lot of the sectors in, in the economy and producing very weak economic growth. And lastly, and it's always the harder part, but the US-China tensions, the issues over Taiwan, the issues over trade, everything just made people and investors not want to invest in China or, or that Asian region. And we think all of these have changed. Um, COVID zero is the most dramatic one. You know, you, you kind of say what can't go on forever has to stop. But when it does stop, we're all surprised. And I think everyone was just so shocked that from one day to the next, it really did end. And it actually took a market quite a while to, it has ended. Um, and the most important part as a takeaway is it is over, but the recovery from that is going to be much, much faster than anyone expected three months ago. In fact, I think you, know, we, you, you can see the numbers. We don't really know what the numbers are, but I've seen numbers up to 900 million people infected in China. I This is going to be the fastest COVID wave in any country um, so far, which is bad for the healthcare system. It's bad for people, but and it's very sad, but it's very good for how quickly the economy can rebound, especially into the second half of the year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, it, it did just seem to happen overnight that they went from saying, no, this is it, we're staying locked down to everything's being reopened. And now we've got uh, international travel once again. We've obviously got the Chinese New Year at the moment. Investors are now thinking about the opportunities. So where do you see them? Yeah, well, let's go back to where the government hit the, the private sector. So the tech regulation, the property regulation, the hit to GDP, all of that's reversing. And I think that's, it's just not one policy. COVID reversing everything that went wrong in the last few years. You are accepting seeing a, a complete about shift in these policies. And so I think we're going to see more positive responses to the private sector. We're going to see the geopolitical angle come off. We're going to see the GDP growth come back. Um, I think in the short term, and when I say short, let's call it the next 12 months or so, it's the technology sector. Um, it's had the steepest derating in terms of P multiple, steep earnings collapse, and the regulatory side. That all comes back, and it's, it's very economically sensitive if it's advertising, it's e-commerce. Um, so, And also, a lot of these are US-listed companies or have dual listing in Hong Kong and US, and therefore they've been depressed share prices. So I think this part of the market, and we've already started to see that, rebound significantly. And you know, maybe just give you an example. We, we own a company called Data Nexus, which does last-mile e-commerce delivery in, in China. And you know, from peak to trough, it's probably down 80%. Um, we continue to hold it because every quarter it beat in terms of its revenue numbers, delivering very high double-digit revenue. No one cared because it was Chinese. It's tripled in the last three months, but we still think it's on 10 times earnings two years out and is beating. So it could it easily double or triple again from here? And I'm looking across the market. We, Despite the, the, the moves from the low, there's significant upside across a range of these sectors. Longer term, 
my bigger picture is all about electric vehicles, industrials, automation, AI, which I think China will have a very big role to play. Uh, same that I think these stocks have held up relatively well. Um, so we'll give some upside, but really it's probably the second half or, or 2024 story. What about the Chinese consumer, though? Because it has taken a battering, haven't they? The yeah, Chinese yeah. consumer, the poor, beleaguered Chinese consumer. And when you think about the way that people have been stuck at home, some have been unable to earn, that has really impacted confidence. How do you see that recovery? This is the big question. Um, and you'll have two views. So if you look at the savings rate, uh, the savings rate in China has spiked dramatically higher. So the Chinese consumer, unlike in, in the West, for example, wasn't given a huge amount of stimulus. So they actually saved more money, which is, again, effectively the economy. So they didn't spend. Um, I think I see numbers of savings about the same size of consumption in the whole of the UK. Uh, about 80% of an annualized consumption in China has been saved. My guess that the Chinese people are the same as everywhere else in the world, that once they get the confidence back, they're going to spend this excess saving, uh, a large chunk of that. And that's probably going to come through the next two years. What are they going to spend it on? Um, I think it's going to be very similar. It's going to be services. It's going to be trips abroad. It's going to be going out to restaurants. It's going to be... some of electric goods because they didn't buy as much as in the West, but that's going to be down. But anything you can shop, um, clothes shopping, for example, which everyone went online, I think some of that goes back to going out and actually try things on. So the service sector in China, I think, is going to be quite exciting in the next 12 months. But autos as well. If you think about going and buying a car, you want to visit the showroom and you want to test drive it. So again, I think the auto demand, although it was relatively okay last year, will again see a pickup uh, into 2023. Do you think we'll see a similar trajectory to what we've seen in, in the UK and the US? So certain services seem to recover much faster than others. And I'm thinking particularly of the travel sector, the airline sector, where there were still huge issues. And that's only just now beginning to work its way through, particularly in terms of investor confidence. Hard, hard to know on this one. Um, we didn't have China didn't have the same destruction or supply as we saw in the West, and they didn't have the same flip flopping. They just closed it all. Um, plus, all the companies are just SOE government related companies, so they're still their supplies. So, so I think they'll manage the supply side much better than we have. Um, two months ago, I would have told you. I don't think international travel is going to come back for a couple of years. Um, and I'm not going to be in China for a long time. I'm probably going to be in China in May. Is um, They've opened up completely, no restrictions. Why wouldn't you go? So, yeah, I, I, I think you're going to find the flights are full. Prices are going to be higher, but not the same as we saw in the West because supply is coming on. And, and I think if you look at commentators, everyone's kind of, well, is China's back, is that going to be inflationary? And I go, no, it's the opposite. But China didn't destroy su- supply. They just rest- restricted demand, but the supply is already there. Um, and therefore, as China comes back, actually, they're going to be pumping goods, services onto the world economy. So I actually think this is quite disinflationary for the world and really good for a global economy. You were talking there about government intervention and, and something which 
is giving some investors pause is the potential that the Chinese government might take big stakes in some Chinese companies. From your perspective, would that be a bad thing? So I think we've been talking since 2018, I think, about government potentially taking a golden share in an Alibaba and a Tencent, these very large technology companies. Um, they already had Communist Party members on the boards. There's always some degree of control for these large companies. Um, and I think that's just becoming more formalized. There's two parts to this. First part, does re-regulation end? Yes. Does increase state support help the companies? Yes. The second part is, does it stop innovation and growth? And I think we'll get a more of a del delicate balance between the two. Once these companies become large, innovation and growth is obviously going to slow down. Um, so it actually helps these companies to be more aligned with the state at these levels. The most important part for an investor I think the Chinese government went through a couple of years of thinking they didn't need the tech companies and they could do it themselves. And I think that's changed. I think there's a realization that actually the government can't do this. It not only needs a private sector, but the private sector is the only place which is going to deliver this growth and especially the employment numbers for the young people. Um, and therefore, this company is going to have to grow. They're going to have to invest. And yes, the government might have a golden share, but that golden share is really to prevent this sort of the rise of technological figures becoming political figures. And if you see what the President Xi Jinping has been saying, what he really doesn't want is business to be involved in politics. Um, and I think that's the clear separation the government is pushing forward. So yeah, the four investors, and you can see this in an Alibaba and Tencent, the share prices are going up because investors price them that effectively their businesses were going to be regulated away. Now there's going to be government, not even a stake, but a vote on the board. I think that risk is disappearing. And some of the big names and faces have also disappeared. And I guess that changes the landscape too. Yeah, was, you know, we've been talking about for this last couple of years is that across the technology space, those original founders have just been leaving in droves. Um, and, you know, there's, there's obviously, there's always a personal reason behind this. But when, you know, you, you've made your money, it's difficult to grow, it's time to leave. It's good. New faces come up. Um, but it also means you become, move towards professional management. Uh, you're becoming more mature. And it also means that from a political standpoint, you're not getting these big uh, worship figures in, in the tech industry. It becomes more of a group. Um, JD.com was one of the first to do this several years ago where Richard Lewis actually stepped down. And the point that he left, that was a fantastic investment. In fact, one of the best investments that you, make, you could make in the e-commerce sector in China. And suddenly it was professionally run and it delivered. And I have a feeling that we're, we're going to see exactly the same thing in a number of vehicles in China. As that founder steps down, um, there's a change in management, in outlook, and far more focus on profitability, on cash flow generation, uh, rather than on spending money on, on pet projects and politics. You've talked about a lot of the potential opportunities there, but 
there are pitfalls as well. And, and something which I know many investors are concerned about is that maybe some Chinese companies are now in a financially weak position. And potentially, do you think that because the supply is still there, that we won't see Chinese firms go bust? I think you've got to be very particular what you're talking about. So on the tech side, no problem whatsoever. On the property side, clearly this is an over-leveraged space. As the share prices are going up, you're seeing rights issues, you're seeing equity raises. I think that continues. They're going to underwrite the property market um, and they're going to try and get it growing again. And that's going to help. I imagine we're going to see a lot of consolidation. Um, so if you're a debt investor in the property space, you've got to be very particular what you're going to buy. As an equity investor, it's an area we just avoid. Um, I, I'm, you've got to pit winners based on who the government is going to allow to survive. It's not our, our forte. So uh, most of the market isn't like this. If I'm looking at some of the companies lending to SMEs, small, medium enterprises, I think we're past the worst. Um, so Lufax is a good example, and this is one of the sort of part of a Ping Yang group. Um, they were talking about MPLs rising probably for the last 12 months into 2023. But changing COVID means it's going to be brought forward. So the peak in bad loans is going to be the first quarter. And then we see a recovery. And I think that's going to be true across China that we've got one more quarter where it's going to be painful because, you know, everyone's at home, COVID's. After that, we see quite a significant improvement across the board as growth comes back again. Ewan Marks and Brown there from Crooks Asset Management. Now, cup half full or cup half empty? I'm guessing that you probably stand on the cup half full side when it comes to the news that the bill for pension tax release has topped 50 billion for the first time. Absolutely. Cup is always half full in the Selby household, particularly when it comes to pensions. So, so yes, the the latest figures from His Majesty's Revenue and Customers de- have detailed exactly how much pension tax relief costs the exchequer each year. And I'm going to put costs in, in inverted commas there because clearly there's an upfront cost, but there's also a benefit at the end of it, which we'll get on to. So pension tax relief is the incentive that people receive for contributing to a, a pension and locking their money up to age 55. The age of first access is going to go up to 57 from 2028. But at the moment, the first point you can access your pension is 55. Now, when you contribute to a pension, you effectively don't pay income tax on that contribution. So that's the way tax relief works. So if you're a 20% tax taxpayer and you contribute to a pension, you'll get 20% tax relief. If you're a 40% taxpayer, you'll get 40% tax relief. And if you're lucky enough to be an additional rate 45% taxpayer, then you'll get 45% tax relief, provided you've got sufficient allowances available, of course. You also get tax-free investment growth in a pension and employers contributing to a pension also benefit from national insurance relief. So they don't pay employer national insurance on that contribution. So HMRC tracks all of these numbers and looks at exactly what the the outgoings are on incentivizing people to save for retirement. So 
if we look at the two main bits, income tax relief estimated to have cost the Exchequer just shy of £27 billion in 2021-22. That's clearly a huge number and we'll get on to why that's the case. And that's up £7.1 billion in the last five years. Now, in terms of the other part of pension tax relief, so national insurance insurance contributions relief, that cost £24.7 billion in 2021-22. So that's up £8 billion versus what we saw in 2017-18, so five years ago. Now, those numbers are large. They're eye-watering. It's why we often are pretty much annually actually see rumour and speculation about the future of pension tax relief because the big round number of, as you say, £50 billion for the first time sounds like a juicy one for any Chancellor to go after. The key reasons we're seeing the cost of pension tax relief go up are are twofold. So it's automatic enrolment. So the fact that millions more people are now saving a pension for the first time, which is, I think most would agree, good news. And also wage growth, which again, that means those contributions to pensions are based on a higher wage, which means the cost of incentivizing people to save for retirement through tax relief has gone up as well. Now, As I said, these kind of big figures will inevitably be seized on by some to to suggest we need some sort of radical reform or cutting back on pension tax relief. A few reasons why why I think that wouldn't necessarily be the best idea, although, of course, I am a pensions advocate, so you might say he would would say (laughs) that, but here's here's my tuppence worth. Um, So, first of all, you still have to pay tax on the way out, so you get that income tax relief on the way in, but then you get a quarter of your pot tax-free on the way out, but the rest of it is still subject to income tax, so you're going to pay income tax on the majority of your pension at some point. We've also already seen substantial cuts in both the lifetime and annual allowance for pension in the last 12 pensions for the last in the last 12 years or so. So it's not like we haven't seen pensions attacked by chancellors previously. And so that's all been done to limit costs. And on a more fundamental level, most people agree that automatic enrolment at the minimum level. So at the at the moment, the minimum level for automatic enrolment is 8% of a chunk of earnings. So earnings worth just over £6,000 and just over £50,000 count towards that minimum contribution. Most people agree that that level of contribution isn't enough. And so we need to be doing more to incentivize people to save for retirement, particularly at a time like now where inflation is is running high and people, lots of people understandably will be deciding whether or not they can decide to save for retirement at all. And finally, one point that I think is often missed off in the debate around pension tax relief and specifically around the whether or not higher rate pension tax relief should remain in place or be removed is that if you're a younger person who's saving for retirement, who's in the early stages of their career and perhaps earning, say, 25 or £30,000, but they're work- you're working your way up the career ladder and you think you're going to become a higher rate taxpayer at some point in the future, then you might feel understandably aggrieved if a government comes forward and removes higher rate pension tax relief and therefore removes your ability to benefit from it as well. Now, I think from a government perspective as well, the danger is that if you go for pension tax relief in the short term to get some money, you're going to be pushing off the problem of people not saving enough for the future in the long term. So 
overall, I would say, agree with your point that this is good news. My cup is definitely half full in terms of the bill for pension tax relief going up. In fact, the bill should be going up more in the future because we need to encourage people to save more for retirement. And that's where the focus needs to be. So always going to be big numbers with pension tax relief. But I think that's something that we need to be celebrating rather than rather than worrying ourselves about. See, I love how excited you get when you talk about <laughs> pensions. I imagine dinner table party, dinner party conversations with you is just, you know, scintillating. Lots of people falling asleep. <laughs> uh, it's been a packed pod, but that's about it for this week. Next week, it is the turn of those big US tech companies to report their earnings. We've had news from Microsoft in the last day or so that it's planning massive job cuts. So there'll be plenty for Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine to get his teeth into alongside Laura Souter. And Dan will be talking to Ronald Temple from Lazard Asset Management on the US Fed interest rate policy and the outlook for corporate earnings. That's it from Danny and I for this week. Don't forget, as always, to subscribe and leave a message wherever you listen to this podcast. And you can always get in touch by email. The email address is podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.